Oh, good morning, Outlook family. Isn't it a beautiful day to worship the Lord and to dig into His Word? It certainly is. And I am ready to do exactly that. I have a few minutes to talk about some huge and very cool truths. And so we're going to jump right in, if you don't mind. We are in the book of Romans this summer, as the intro there uh, highlighted. And uh, just to review where we've been so that we can know where we are today. We started out with some pretty bad news in Romans chapter 1. Our sin has separated us from the God who made us, knows us, and loves us. But then that's quickly followed up with some really, really great news that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the dead and that he bridges the gap that has been created by our sin and now we can have a relationship with God. Now, then one of the implications of that, which we talked about deeply last week, is that now we, as believers in Jesus, have victory over the sin and darkness that wants to overtake and keep our lives pinned down to the ground. You might remember from Romans chapter 7, this um, sentiment expressed by the Apostle Paul that we maybe can all relate to. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Anyone ever feel miserable every now and then? Yeah, maybe just once or twice, right? What a miserable person I am, he writes. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? His answer, thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Here at Outlook, we believe strongly that the Word of God is powerful, supernaturally so. And so, in this passage this morning, my job, as it is any Sunday morning, is to bring the Scriptures to us, get them out in the light so we all can see them, move through them in a way that we can start to internalize and and understand them, shed a little light if necessary, and mostly stay out of the way. And let the miracle that takes place every Sunday morning happen. That miracle between God's holy, inspired, supernatural Word and our hearts. And what God does by His Spirit between that Word and our own hearts and minds. Amen? We believe something miraculous happens there. Something amazing. And so we're praying it happens again today. These verses that we'll be looking at simply must be read. I will be moving through this passage. There's lots to talk about there, and only a short time to talk about all of it, at least for now. But these verses, this passage, man, It must be unleashed. It must be heard. It must be allowed to land on ears and minds and hearts. Because the truth and the reality that we're encountering here in this passage is one that every Christian simply must get to know and internalize. It is core to understanding what it means to follow Jesus. So I'm really looking forward to getting started, which is what I'd like to do right now. Are you ready? Romans chapter 8 now, starting in verse 1, begins, So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. In all of this talk so far in the book, uh, we've been tackling the idea that we're bound by sin, that darkness seems to reign in this world, and on far too many days it seems to still reign in my heart and maybe yours. 
He says, let's be super clear. We can talk about all of that, but it doesn't mean there's any condemnation for you who belong to Christ Jesus. That we are moved from condemnation to acceptance. And that this is a foundation for what it means to grow spiritually and to understand what Jesus has done for us. The big Bible word for it, justification. That we've talked, and we've talked about it before in this series, being made right with God. The idea that God accepts me as I am, that nothing I'll do today will make him love me more or less, is something we all have to internalize if we're going to grow in Christ. And begin to mature, and really live the life that he has for us to live. If that truth feels unstable, if that truth feels doubtful, like, oh man, I'm just not so sure, and you feel like your faith or or God's love for you is precarious, hanging by a thread, then it'll be tough to grow in the life that he has for you. You need to, in faith, know that you're standing on a firm foundation of love and grace. That there is zero condemnation. Meaning, condemnation is like, I'm going to put you in a category of unacceptable. I'm going to keep you at a distance. And when, we, when someone is condemned, they are put away. We are being told here, God does none of that for us. God does not keep his distance from you until you get your act together or mine. Amen? There's zero condemnation. We don't need to live life locked up anymore. We are pardoned and no longer imprisoned. So this is good to hear right out of the gate. And it's true for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And so I also, right out the gate, want to ask you this question. Do you belong to Christ Jesus? Whether you're with me here in the room, or you're joining us online, or you're watching after the fact. Do you belong to Christ Jesus? You can today. That there is, there's no hurdle, there's no hoop to jump through that needs to keep you from giving yourself to Jesus today. You can instantly and easily belong to Him. Repent, say, God, left to myself, I've done life without you, and it is, it is, it is nothing, uh, nothing good. And I'm sorry about that. I want to accept your grace by faith, and I want to Learn what it means to follow you, Lord Jesus. I receive your grace into my life. It's just that simple. It's a prayer. We can talk about how to then live that out and get baptized and begin to understand what it means to follow Jesus. But I just want you to hear as the seed thought today in this passage, write out verse 1. Do you belong? To him, Because everything we're talking about will be true for those who belong to him. And if you're ready to give, I guarantee you, he is always ready to receive. So let nothing get in your way of giving yourself to him. Verse 2, let's keep going. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to to death. That's much of what we talked about last week, this freedom that Christ gives. Now, so if things were starting to feel confining, talking about how we're bound by sin and darkness and the oppression that that gives, here in verse 1 and following of chapter 8, we are opening up into a vast expanse of blue sky filled with grace and the life-giving Spirit, as Paul 
puts it here. In fact, that life-giving Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, pervades this passage. He's called the life-giving Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, or just sometimes the Spirit, all referring to the same person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Five times so far has the Spirit been referred to in the book of Romans, but from this point through the rest of the chapter, which we'll talk about today and next week, 22 times. The Spirit pervades this portion of the Scriptures because it's because we need the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is what makes possible this life that we get to live as people who belong to Jesus. And that's Paul's main concern here, describing what it means to belong to Christ and what that life looks like, that it's an, a, a salvation that we can live and enjoy. Verse 3, the law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. Now, now Paul is laying out a contrast here. He begins to describe life in Jesus, but then he reminds us that if you were trying, if you were the original reader of, of what he has written here, or, or even us today, he's saying, look, the law of Moses, which is what we would call our Old Testament, those, those um, descriptions of life as God would instruct his people to live it, the law was unable to save us because we were weak. In other words, we couldn't obey it. Now, there, that's the first term here in this, this part of the passage to look at. What, what is he referring to by the law of Moses? He also uses this phrase, our sinful nature, which he'll use repeatedly here in the verses coming up. Now, sometimes that's translated our flesh. And what it means is, or what it's referring to, is our unregenerate or yet-to-be-regenerated self. So regenerated means made new. And so when we come to Christ, this regeneration begins in our souls. We are being made new. But as we talked about last week, not all our parts, not all our habits, not all our addictions, not all our uh, ingrained ways of acting and reacting are instantly changed. There's a process to that, right? And so we still have some of what he calls our sinful nature kicking around in there doing its own thing. Is that only me or is that anyone else here? Okay, I'm going to just go ahead and take that. Yeah, thank you, Rosie. All right. And so uh, Paul is laying out a contrast between our new nature and our, as he puts it, sinful nature or our flesh. Here's a quick illustration. Remember, you might remember a story in the Gospels. Jesus, right before he's arrested, goes with his disciples to a garden to pray. He is stressed to the max. He knows what is about uh, to happen uh, to him. And he says to his disciples, you stay here, uh, watch and pray. And he goes a little farther down uh, the way and he begins to pray. And when he comes back after praying, he comes back to see his disciples and they are having a fervent prayer meeting. Is that what's happened in that story? You may remember that's not what happens. They are probably what I would be asleep. It's getting late. It's dark. They are not praying. They are snoozing. And what does Jesus say to him? Say to them, the Spirit is willing. It's a very gracious thing that he says to them. It's full of grace and understanding. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He understands that their hearts are with them, but they're still fighting their own uh, internal you know, need for comfort and, and their own fatigue. Now, the, 
the great part about the passage that we're looking at today is it adds something. The Spirit is willing and now powerful. Not only weak. It's, we are not destined now to be only weak, but now we are powerful over the flesh or the sinful nature. So what Paul, the point Paul was making right here is, could be summarized like this. The law is good. Hey, uh, it describes God as life would have us live it, but the fact is we couldn't do it, or at least we couldn't do it on our own. We can't do it. So the law had a purpose, but it, it could only do so much, and it wasn't enough. It showed us that we need a Savior. And so let's keep, let's keep reading what Paul says here. So, God did what the law could not do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Now, man, I hope you had your coffee this morning, right? I mean, this is some deep stuff. These are big ideas that we're trying to wrap our heads around. God came to earth in the flesh, lived a life that never deserved death but instead chose to die, to break the control of sin over people's lives. And so as we put our faith in Him, we are tapping into that. And remember, like we said last week, sin is not all that list of bad things you know you're not supposed to do. Sin is all of that and more. It's all the dysfunction and discord that happens in us and between us as human beings. Jesus came to begin to reverse the momentum of all of that. He did this, it says in verse 4, so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. What do we see in here? First, we see that God got involved that God saw what was going on with us, that God saw our distance and did something about it. He did what the law could not do because we were unable to do anything for ourselves. And maybe that's something you need reminded of today. I often need reminded of it. Try to live for God on your own steam, relying on your own resources, and you invite frustration and futility into your life, to say the least. Amen? God supplies the power in His Spirit by His grace, that we are filled with that Spirit. And like we talked about last week, grace is not just forgiveness, it's fuel for the life that He calls us to live. And so we are given exactly that. We can live new lives. And so Jesus lived a sinless life, yet He died a sinner's death. He died my death, and He rose to life as Lord over both sin and death. It was a total twofer. He, became, he gained victory over sin, which always leads to death. And that's what we are being told in this passage. The law served to describe righteousness and point out unrighteousness. The gospel is the only thing, though, that actually can make righteousness possible. The chance to live right before God. The chance to begin to make healthy, whole uh, fully wise decisions. All of that comes by 
being in grace, by living according to the gospel. There's this four-line poem I've read many times over the years. No one quite seems to know exactly who originally wrote it. Lots of people get quoted uh, by it, but uh, I've always found it to be a helpful thing to describe what what we're talking about right here. I don't have it on the screen. It goes like this. To run and work the law commands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. That the law can point out all the things I should do, lots of should, but gives me no power to actually do it. In fact, the main function of the law ends up becoming to help me keep bumping into the fact that I'm no good on my own. But the gospel then comes and says, you can do more than work. You can do more than run. You can fly and gives me the wings, the freedom, the joy, the spirit to do it. Now, this passage, this part of the passage that we just read ends by describing you and me as people who no longer follow the sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. This has us moving from our old nature, dominated by sin, to a new nature, controlled and led by the Spirit. That's uh, uh, exactly the core truth of when I said that we're talking today about a core truth. If we're going to wrap our heads around what it means to follow Jesus, this is a big deal. And that is, this gets left behind by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit living in us. And that we are people who then can leave that behind, no longer follow it. Now, this puts us right back in the boxing ring we talked about a couple weeks ago at the outdoor service. Fighting with our old nature as we gain victory over it and get stronger and stronger in this new nature. Why? Because we finally have tremendous power in our corner. We have the Spirit living in us. Now, we shouldn't confuse this when we think about our sinful nature or our flesh, we're not talking about the physical body versus our spirit. That's a great thing about Christian theology. Our physical bodies are not considered bad things. In fact, they are wonderful vessels of the spirit. It's more about our old nature without the Holy Spirit and our new nature with. And so what does this look like? Let's let the scriptures keep answering that question. Verse 5. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So Paul begins his description of what this looks like by beginning with our thoughts, which is where many things truly begin, right? In what we think. And so uh, another translation refers to it as where we set our minds or how our minds are set. And that's a good way to think about it. Under the Holy Spirit living in us, our minds begin to to run on a new course. They're set in new ways. We think new thoughts. And we don't live according to our old ways of thinking and thus behaving, acting and reacting, right? Verse 6, so letting your sinful nature control your mind, mm, that leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Now, you might read that like I do and think, well, that's easier said than done. That sounds really nice, but how how does that happen? Fortunately, the recipe for how that happens is not complicated. It's getting into God's Word. 
It's coming to church and hearing it taught. It's being around fellow believers. So you begin to think, uh, think differently because you're encouraging and sharpening each other. It's time spent in prayer. It's those good old disciplines that never lose their relevance. And in that, you, as we begin to just marinate our lives in God, then we begin to see that the Spirit will start to help in our thoughts and guide us in new ways. The mind is governed, that's the way another translation puts it, by the Spirit. But when our minds are governed by our sinful nature, it leads to death. What does that look like? Well, certainly... It looks like all our base appetites, all our reflexes and reactions from before we knew Jesus, still kicking around. It certainly means all of that. Our old lusts, our old boasts, our greed, our pride, for sure. It means all that stuff. And Jesus saves us from that. We escape from the gravitational pull of all of that day by day by day. But it also means something more, just real quick here, on the, on the flip side of that. Because if you've been following Jesus for a little while, there's another aspect to this that Paul addresses all a, a, a bunch. So does Jesus. And it's the idea of that, and when we follow Jesus for a while, sometimes this becomes our greater handicap. It's not debauchery. It's not all those nasty sinning things that, the, that we all can list off. Uh, maybe we're not going to do those, but we can get really religious instead. It's not debauchery. Sometimes it's religiosity. Because frankly, some religious people think about sin more than just about anyone else. And Paul is saying you don't have to keep thinking about sin either way. So instead of being obsessed with not sinning, religious rule following or staying on God's good side, we can become more concerned uh, about the good life that we're living, not the sin we're avoiding, right? That we have a life instead that we can enjoy. Instead of just thinking about all those things we used to think were fun, and now we can't do them anymore, right? This might seem like a weird thing, but I really don't think, uh, I, I think it's an important thing because we Christians can sometimes end up missing that point and the real problem is not only does it make our own Christian life pretty boring, it turns others off of what it means to be a Christian. That far too often, the impression people get about what it means to be a Christian is, oh yeah, you've got a list of rules and things you're not supposed to do, usually all the fun stuff, and you really don't seem to be enjoying it too much yourself. We have a wrong idea about what Christian holiness means. Because it's not about external rules. It's about internal fruit. It's about the Spirit living in us, growing us into new people. So, Paul says, let the Spirit be in charge of your thinking. Verse 7, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. In other words, they can't have that relationship that God so desperately wants to have with them because they're still under the control of the sinful nature. They've not let the Spirit in. They've not opened the door. They've not welcomed Jesus into their lives just yet. We were all there once. And it's helpful to remember that. He describes it as hostility to God. And we move toward more of an alignment with God. 
Think about what that passage said, that without Jesus, we are hostile to God. We are insubordinate to God. We are unable to please God. No wonder Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Because this is, if we stop and think about it, the condition of all of our human souls. They are in need, not just of renovation, but of a complete rebuild. I need to be born completely a second time, spiritually speaking. I need torn down and rebuilt and made new. I need my crooked places and my bent places made straight. I need my weak places made strong. I need my wounded places healed and made whole. Only Jesus can do this. I can't do it by myself. I can't make myself new. Jesus gives us that newness that we all need. Without him, we are simply kicking against God. We are hostile to him. But as we say yes to him, we will find all kinds of aspects of our lives coming into alignment, piece by piece, place by place. He rebuilds us from the ground up into brand new people. And it is an amazing, wondrous, and um, enjoyable thing to experience over the course of our lives and to see it happen in each other too. Amen? Amen? Hey, I just like to make sure, you know, you're still, you're still with me. Verse 9, verse 9. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. All the, again, all this talk about sinful nature and our flesh, Paul now just wants to make sure we, we're hearing loud and clear. But you, you who belong to Christ, which can be you today, can be any of us today, you're not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Parentheses, and remember, he says, that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. In other words, what he's saying is right back what he said at the beginning. If for those who belong to Christ, no one who belongs to Christ lacks his Spirit. That's part of the deal. It's exactly the way it's meant to work. It is the promise that if you have professed Christ, you've repented, you're baptized, you're living reliant on Him. I didn't say behaviorally perfect. I didn't say full of all the answers. I didn't say getting straight A's on all your spiritual report cards or whatever. But you've said yes to Jesus. Then by faith you can know that you have, as he writes here, the Spirit of God living in you. And this, this moment, this, this truth, I'm coming right back to it again because it's so foundational. We can't live the Christian life without the indwelling Spirit. And that Spirit is promised to us to fill us, to guide us, and to live in us. The indwelling Spirit is huge, and it's not a metaphor or an analogy. It is not, the Scriptures do not say, you will be as though God were living within you. No, God is living within you. You will not be like someone filled with God. No, you will be filled with God. Now, will you feel it on any given day? Maybe, maybe not, right? I have plenty of days where I don't feel those truths. It doesn't matter. That's what faith is for, amen? By faith, I accept God's promise that when I say yes to Jesus, I am filled with and, and, can, and have His Spirit living in me, changing my thoughts, guiding then my choices and behaviors, filling me with His fruit and His virtue, 
day by day, those things can grow in me and in you. Verse 10, and Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living in you. Now we begin to see that we're moving from death to life. Jesus lives in you, it says, and even though your body, these bodies, frail, fragile uh, as they are, will one day give out on us, but it won't matter that the Spirit lives in us and, the, and our spirit lives forever. That our body has a shelf life, an expiration date, but it also, as it says later, has a resurrection date. At the end of the passage there, he talks about how the Spirit of Jesus will then raise us all one day to live forever with God. This week has been kind of an unusual week for me uh, in that I've, I'm conducting two funerals this week, uh, one earlier and one later today. Um, and that gives someone uh, the opportunity to think a lot about the brevity of life, how fragile life is, how precious it is, how unpredictable our earthly lives can be. So let me just say today, as we read these words that we just read, Christ lives in you, your body will die because of sin. Sin has introduced death and decay into our world, and these bodies that we have will one day give out. So the most important thing that any of us can consider today or any day is the state of our eternal souls. So let me just ask you again, do you belong to Jesus. Amen. And if you would like to learn more about what it means to belong to Jesus, come see me after church. I'd love to chat with you about that. Nothing is more important. Verse 12, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Someone say urges. Anyone here have urges? Every now and then, right, he says, uh, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do, for if you live by its, its dictates, you will die. We have to be honest. We ought to be a church that is honest about our urges, right? That we live in bodies, that we are working and in, in, in the fighting the good fight of sin against sin. And that we can be people who are honest with ourselves, honest to God, and honest with each other about what it means to live this life. And that we can encourage each other to ignore any seeming obligation to still follow those urges that used to beset us. Because not everything that feels natural is right and good. We have no obligation, just as there's no condemnation, there is no obligation to follow the person we used to be. Sin may be phoning, the phone may be ringing, ringing, but you don't have to answer the call. Let it go to voicemail and let the greeting be, Hi, this is Rob or Sue or Joe or Tom, child of God and no longer bound by sin, belonging to Christ and without condemnation by or obligation to it. Amen? We might feel as though there are competing obligations in our lives. But in the end, the peace that Jesus brings helps us see that there really isn't. There really aren't. 
You have no obligation, he says, to do what your sinful nature urges you to do, for if you live by its dictates, you will die. But, the verse goes on, if, you, if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Now, that sounds like something I'm supposed to do. Sounds like I have something to do right there. Theologians call it mortification, the killing of our sinful nature. By starvation, usually, by neglect, we let it wither and we let it die because we're focusing all our attention on this new life that we've been given. It's like those cartoons I would watch when I was a kid or some of those old 50s show. Two gunslingers are in town, right? They meet, they meet and they see each other and what do they say? This town ain't big enough for the two of us, right? And that's what's happening in our own souls between our old nature and our new. This soul ain't big enough for the two of us. Someone's got to go down. And that's what Paul is saying here. We put to death our sinful nature. Someone's got to die, and it's either going to be sin or it's going to be me. And so by the power of the Spirit, I begin to let my sin die of starvation and neglect. 4, verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Now this is a whole other sermon, but there's something very appropriate about linking the Holy Spirit to childlikeness, and to being a child, to being eternally young, and to youthfulness. There's a really beautiful thing uh, to think about right there, but I'm running out of time. Verse 15, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now, this might make us sit up in our seats a little bit. Say, say what? Adopted? Oh, it's one thing, you know, to be accepted. Yeah, I'm forgiven. That's great. No longer a slave. Fine. But adopted as God's own children? This is the final movement from slavery to adoption. Not only am I not condemned, but I'm so much more than that. I am fully adopted. That Greek word means uh, the full legal standing of an adopted heir in Roman culture. I used to be a fearful slave to a ruthless tyrant, myself, sin, my old nature. Now we get to be adopted children of a loving father. And the passage concludes, now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. That term, Abba is Aramaic for father, but it's an informal, affectionate, and familiar term. We might say dad today. You know, father feels formal. If you called your father, hello, father, then that probably sounds pretty formal, right? But dad is a more common uh, thing for us. And that's exactly what Jesus called our heavenly father and his heavenly father and what he, how he taught us to address him as well. We now call him Abba, Father. No longer condemned, not kept at a distance ever, but completely loved and accepted. What a miserable person I am, Paul wrote. And we all, internally at least, agreed and felt that same misery. What a miserable year it's been for so many of us, right? Thank God, he says, the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so before I pray, as we wrap up, I just want to encourage you, as we look through this first half of Romans chapter 8, so many of you are beginning to, 
to get back in church, which I love to see, back serving in ministry, I want to encourage you to get back to who you are. These truths are are slippery, and they're big, and sometimes they're hard to keep a grip on. And if anything's been disorienting, this last year has been. And so if you're listening to me right now or later online, uh, or right now online, I just want to encourage you to get back to who you are, an adopted and loved child of God. And that let that secure truth, firm in your footing, not unstable or, or in doubt, but instead walking with the surety that God loves me, no matter what this last year has been like for you, what you've done or what's happened to you, you name it. Get back to who you are, a child of God, and then let good decisions flow from that because the Spirit will allow that to happen as you keep making room for Him. Let's pray about that. Father, we do want to, we just want to be who you say we are. And what you speak over us, Lord, does not have a hint of condemnation. What you say about us, what you see when you look at us, and that, that view, those words, are f- that perspective, full of affection, full of the desire to empower and to embrace and to fill. And so, Lord, help us to just accept that, to, to live out that truth and, and realize that it's, it's a solid and secure truth that we can build a life on. We thank you for that. We accept it again today. Thank you for the reminder of it from your precious supernatural word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.